Welcome to the Puberty Prof Podcast, where information and tools are shared to help you have conversations about puberty and other growing up topics. Here is your host, Lori Reichel, the Puberty Prof, a nationally recognized health educator, author of the award-winning book, Common Questions Children Ask About Puberty, and creator of the Talk Puberty app. And welcome to the Puberty Prof Podcast. I'm your host, Lori Reichel, the Puberty Prof. For today's episode of the Puberty Prof Podcast, another podcaster is joining us. Her name is Jen Taylor, and her podcast is titled Becoming Parents. In addition to her podcast, Jen is a mom of many children, runs a Christian household, and has experienced homeschooling for herself as well as her children. Jen, thank you so much for being here today. I'm looking forward to our conversation. Would you mind telling us a little bit about yourself and saying hi to our audience? Hi to your audience. Yeah, absolutely. I am happy to. I mean, you, you've touched on very many things. I'm mom to 18 children, and which is a big family. I have my podcast, Becoming Parents, which talks about anything from infertility, miscarriage, deliveries, bottle feeding versus like, there's no right way to do it. Right. So I really love to explore people's experience from the period of conception all the way through to parenting issues, really. Uh, And I love it. I've been super passionate about podcasting for almost five years now. In a couple of weeks, I'll hit the five-year mark. Wow. I've had a blog called Mom's Running It since 2011. I'm a published author and I've been a motivational speaker off and on for years. I have my NLP practitioner certification and I've spent 15 plus years in the foster care sector as a parent and as a trainer. For personal things, I'm married to the most incredible man. I live in Reno, Nevada. I'm a runner, minimalist. Uh, We're moving into an RV full-time in about a week. And (laughs) like, there you go. There's a whole bunch of facts about me. (laughs) Before we continue, let's have our our audience process a little bit that you have 18 children. 18. Can you give us some background to that? Yeah, absolutely. At 15, I was not sexually active, but I was having a lot of issues in kind of that department. I hadn't started my period. It was a month before I turned 16. So my mom brought me to an OBGYN and it was the, he was male. It was a really amazing, wonderful experience. You know, I'd I'd never been touched by a man and he had to give me an exam. It was, it was, like I said, it was a really, really positive experience. And so for girls out there who are dreading or unsure or want to, you know, concerned male or female, it really, it really depends on the person you go see and how comfortable you are and how skilled at making you comfortable they are. It it was a really, really positive experience. In that experience, he told me that although he wasn't sure what my issues were, a lot of the situation indicated that I might not be able to have children. And he told me at 15 to be open to the idea that I would probably have to go through infertility and that I might not be able to biologically have kids. Interestingly, I'm 51 now, and I was just barely turning 16. And I'm not exactly sure everything he saw in that situation that would have led him to make a comment that 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 was that 
like forceful. That's a pretty big deal. You're probably going to have to go through infertility and you might not be able to have biological children. It was a beautiful thing because it sort of planted a seed to me. I grew up with a lot of dysfunction and my third grade teacher made a really, really pivotal difference in my life. And so I already was kind of hardwired, so to speak, that you can make an enormous difference in the life of a child in passing unintentionally, and sometimes often without even knowing it. And so I was super geared to do foster care because I was one of those kids that should have been put into foster care that had an outside influence make change my trajectory, basically. And so I did go through infertility. Uh, when I was 20, I went through infertility. And again, I was married really young. It wasn't like we were trying super hard to have kids. I'd gone a year with no periods and no pregnancy. And so I was automatically a fertility issue, so to speak. And, you know, one of my daughters has gone through all the same stuff. And it's not necessarily because you're trying to have a baby. It's because you're trying to figure out what's going on. And the surgeries and the process are the same, regardless. I did elect to go on all the medication to try to become pregnant. So I went through seven surgeries. I was maxed out on Clomid and Provera. And I was, went through infertility for about 10 months and I got up to the part of infertility where in vitro fertilization, IVF is an issue. And I waved the white flag. I knew that that was not my journey. And in weaning me off the medication, my doctor came in and hugged me, which was very unusual. Uh, Really, really, again, a really great experience with a male OBGYN. And he said, I don't know how it's possible, but you're pregnant. You're not pregnant on the cycle. We put you on. And I would consider this your miracle from God. I had never spoken religion to this man before, but it was a tough pregnancy. It was a, it, uh, she was born with a lung disease, which had nothing to do with the pregnancy or the infertility, but the whole process made me realize that if I got pregnant on my own, that was great. That would be the surprise. Uh, the doctor, after I had my oldest daughter who just turned 30, a couple days ago, he told me that I, they would start me on IVF. They wouldn't, they like, do not pass go. If I wanted to have more children biologically, I would pick up where I left off. So I knew that was not my plan. I started doing foster care and my plan was to do the foster adopt program, which I did. Um, I, took in, I adopted four children and took in two long-term placements that kind of never aged out or never left or stayed really long-term. And I gave birth three more times. I was pregnant a total of seven times. I lost three and I gave birth four total. So those were really the surprises. People often say, oh, you took in extras with foster care. Like, no, I planned that. I, I, I gave birth to extras. And my seventh pregnancy, I lost twins at 19 weeks and I had a DNC and then a hysterectomy. And then I had emergency sur- surgery because I was internally bleeding. I was, it took over two and a half hours. I was dead on the table. I had five blood transfusions. It was very traumatic. And I just figured God wasn't ready for me <laughs> and no one else wanted to take care of these 10 kids. And then I ended up within a year divorcing, leaving a church that was a cult And starting over as a single mom on my own with those 10 kids. How old were you? How old? I was 33 when I had the hysterectomy. So I was about 34 at the time. Uh, My oldest daughter was born when I was 21. So 
I, it was a huge life change. I went from being a stay at home mom and homeschooling, like you said, and, you know, doing all this foster care and really having a life that I loved a lot. I really loved my life and to being a single parent completely on my own for a couple of years without my ex-husband able to uh, help with the kids at all financially or physically in any way. And I continued to do foster care. So I adopted one more and I took in three more kids that were long-term. So I had 14 kids and my oldest daughter, who's 30 now, my oldest biological daughter, who's 30 now, I had nine kids at the time living at home and nine to 12 kids. I've had years and years and years of nine to 12 kids living at home, but never more than 12 at once, which seems easy to me out of 18. You know, it's crazy to other people, but uh, yeah, I... It was great. I kept doing foster care, even though I worked up to four jobs sometimes. I really loved it. I had those kids. And my oldest daughter fixed me up on a date with Dane. And Dane had four kids and his wife had died. So that's where 18 comes from. That's a not super condensed. I apologize. <laughs> What's really neat about this, though, Jen, is there was just an episode released of the podcast. It was episode episode 50. For the intro of that episode, I went over that there's different types of families. Because sometimes people think, well, there's a biological mom, biological dad, and then these children are from, from this, these two people. And I put in there that there are so many different types of families in the year 2022 to understand that you can have a choice of the type of family that you have sometimes. Yeah. I mean, if you want to have a biological child, sometimes you can't. In which then I go to the other thing that you made me think of that if you're having challenges. If you, if you have a child that hasn't had a period yet and they reach a certain age, like 15, 16, bring them to a, a doctor that you trust. And I'm so glad that you went to someone that you trusted and you felt comfortable with at yeah. the age of 16. That was huge. I didn't really have a choice. I mean, you know, when you're a teenager, your mom makes the appointment, you show up. I remember he was probably like six foot two, an incredibly good looking guy you know, when you walk in and you're an uncomfortable, almost 16 year old, and I hadn't been sexually active at all, that can, all of those things together can make it a super uncomfortable situation. And he was really, first of all, I think I've always, I've always been pretty confident and I have not had really low self-esteem or body issues. And I'm very, very grateful that like I have my, that wasn't my struggle, right? My struggle was other things. And I'm grateful that I was comfortable with myself, although no matter what, that was not a comfortable situation and physically as well as emotionally. And uh, he was just very gracious. And I feel blessed that that's the situation that I was brought into because who knows what it could have been. I feel really, really grateful about that. So if you're a caregiver listening in, please do, if you go take your child to a doctor, make sure there's someone that will allow your child to feel comfortable. I am extremely passionate about that because when I was 18, I had asked one of my parents to take me to a doctor, like for a physical. I was a future health educator here and I knew I was supposed to go get a physical and I was brought to a gynecologist. I was not sexually active. Nobody ever touched me anywhere before. And he got annoyed at me. He didn't explain things well. He attempted to do a pap test and I told him to stop putting something into the vaginal opening because it hurt. And he got annoyed and he's like, well, then I can't do it. And I was like, don't do the test. And I actually passed out when I went to go get my mother. 
And I'm in a way thankful that for that happened because that helped me become a better educator of how we need to advocate for young people as well as ourselves. And I'm sure you're such a wonderful advocate for your young people in your life. I think like almost vicious advocates. I, that, vicious seems like a negative word, but it's not because yes. And I mean, I, you know, we've dealt with, with these 18 kids. I can't think of a single situation that you could bring up that I have an experience with at least one of my children, right? And I don't want them to be sexually active. If they're going to be though, I am the mom that marches them directly into the OBGYN. I know which doctor that I want to use and they have the choice of having me in the room or not. And if I'm, and all of them have had me in the room, which is says great things about their comfortability with me and with themselves, but they would rather be uncomfortable with me there than uncomfortable alone. And I am their advocate. And one of my daughters said to me once, I like, I don't know at what point I'll be old enough because she's in her twenties, her early twenties for you to not come with me because you ask questions. I just have more life experience. I've just done this more for longer. And I am completely unafraid to ask questions or to not understand something or, you know, like, no, I I want to understand and know how this works in every situation. And so I'm a good advocate because I'm not afraid of looking stupid. I'm not afraid of asking questions. I'm not afraid of making the doctor uncomfortable or myself uncomfortable. And I always preface it by saying, you know, I'm not like whichever child it, it is of mine, Gabby, I absolutely don't want to make you uncomfortable, but I really want to ask questions. Is that okay? Even though she's told me that it is okay. Yes, it's okay. All right. Well, I have a question about this and I want it explained and, and I want them to hear my questions and I want them to hear the explanation because they just, they get nervous. They get shy. They get uncomfortable. They don't know what questions to ask because they haven't they don't have the life experience that I have. So I'm very, right. very grateful that they've realized that when I'm there, they're going to learn a lot more. And then at some point they won't want me or need me to be there anymore because they will have become their own advocate through me modeling that just like you are as a teacher. I was just going to say the word model. I mean, that's as a theoretical concept that we do in the health education classroom where we model certain things and then their peers can model positive behaviors too, in which I would like to go to that part of your life regarding your Christianity. Cause you oh. shared with me when we got connected through Facebook on a parenting bloggers group, you had shared with me that you're Christian and how does that transfer over for raising children in your eyes, particularly when they start going through those people, pubescent years where other people seem to become becoming more important or having more of an influence. I, this is such a multifaceted sort of loaded question. I would have, I consider myself a Christian since I was a child. My faith was just part an innate part of who I was. I already said that I left a cult. So I feel like when we are really searching for there are faith or belief in something I'm, I'm using God, uh, my faith or belief in God and how that affects the things that are important to me. And for me, that was, that was my family values. And it was also my relationship with someone who I was intimate with, with my husband. Right. And I've said, I've gotten divorced, which, and I've gotten, I've gotten divorced more than once and you don't, I never got married 
to get divorced. So you're navigating through a lot of really tough stuff. I also didn't get married to remain in a relationship that was abusive or manipulative. And I also learned through that process that I can only control myself and what I'm doing and what I'm saying. And when you're talking about another person, even like these kids with their friends, it's a great example or a, uh, a parallel when you're in a situation that you realize is not really positive, it will work against you unless you stand up and get out of it. And although I'm not a proponent for divorce, I'm also not a proponent for remaining in relationships that you've done everything that you can and they are not going to change. And the way they are is unacceptable to your value system. In being a Christian, my personal belief is that all the answers are in the scriptures. One, you have to look for them, but you have to ask and you have to look and then you have to study and then you have to understand. And then you have to realize that sometimes the answers aren't easy because it's harder to live a Christian lifestyle than not. The world is a super easy, attractive place to live in. And we're constantly battling. We will never be perfect. And we're constantly battling our human nature and what we should do, what we want to do versus what we should do. So how does that look? It looks super, super imperfect. I'm a very imperfect parent who put my kids first, who gave 100% every single day. Sometimes 100% looked like I was knocking it out of the park. And sometimes 100% looked like a fraction. And the reason it looks so different, even though I'm giving it my all every day is because, well, maybe I'm sick. Maybe we're going through a really hard time. Maybe I don't react to something as well as I could have. Like I'm human. And if I have a quota of messing up daily, I'm, I'm not a quitter, man. I'm going to meet or exceed that quota of messing up, including in my parenting. What I have is the ability to ask for forgiveness, to make it right, to apologize, to do better the next time, to let my kids know that in their bad decisions and imperfectness, I'm also someone who can make bad decisions and be imperfect and how I respond to them. And that regardless, I am really legitimately wanting and trying to do my best and also teaching them that I'm living my own story while I'm helping them create theirs. And they have to be old enough to a certain amount. And you have to not overshare your life. There are things that are not appropriate to share with your kids. Like, why did I divorce your dad? That's none of your business right? Like you have to set boundaries and what's appropriate. However, there is a level of sharing and admitting your, your mistakes and your humanness that allows them to realize that when you're mad at them, when you yell at them, when you give them consequences, when you're really frustrated and irritated, and when you don't handle parenting beautifully, that there are reasons why, and they can know that so that, that what that teaches them is that in the mistake that they made and the thing that they did that you got really ticked off about, you don't love them less. What Christianity has done is it's taught that because God loves me, not only regardless of how imperfect I am, knowing that I'm going to be imperfect, accepting that and loving me despite the fact that I'm imperfect and I make mistakes has taught my kids that I feel the same way for them. So I may not love your actions, but I don't love you less. I may not react perfectly in a situation or beautifully in a situation, but you, you know, 
our, it doesn't necessarily mean it needs to affect our relationship. Having said that, I've never been emotionally or physically abusive to my kids. Like my, my messing things up, I definitely like I'm a yeller. I, I'm from New England. We use our hands. We get excited. We get loud. And that's not an excuse. I'm, I'm very extroverted. It's just part of who I am that I have to really try to regulate and modify. That's difficult for me to do. So when I get mad, I raise my voice. I don't think that that's an awful thing. If I have to pick something to not be good at, that's not a bad one to not be good at. However, I do have the ability to apologize. And also as a parent in my story and my journey to learn to not react in the moment, sometimes that's not possible and you need to react in the moment. And knowing that I don't regret any of my parenting decisions, I did learn from them and I did use them to try to become better. And like Christianity is a guidebook. Interestingly, my two best friends are not Christian. And I love to point this out because we're all saying the same thing in a different way. So my friend uses the words universe, which to me is God and energy, which to me is a feel the feeling that you can get to be guided by the Holy ghost. I think we get really stuck on, Oh, she's a Christian and won't understand or her value system is different. Actually, Every one of us is saying the exact same thing. You're saying it in a way different. And I use the Bible as a guidebook, which you are omitting. You don't need to. You can look at it as a historical, truly, not as a spiritual, but as a historical and archaeological book. It is proven through history and through archaeology, through science, right? You can use it as just that and read it from the perspective that as something that's historical, archaeological, and scientific, that it really gives a lot of guidelines into raising parent, raising children, having relationships, regardless of the fact that you believe or not in God specifically or in Jesus Christ. So you say manifest, not you specifically, but someone out there may use the word manifest. And that's me setting goals and praying, being guided and directed in what, what I should do or should not do. It's, it's me asking and waiting for an answer and allowing it to unfold. So that's probably a tangent in a lot of different ways of Christianity and raising my kids. I just used it as a guide of part of who I am. And I use my experience as part of who I am. And I also used my vernacular God, Jesus Christ, Holy Spirit, manifesting energy and universe. Like I just use a vernacular to make it so that not only did it, did it eliminate being able to have conversations with people it actually opened them up because I realized that we're all almost everyone saying the same thing in a different way. Well, for your children, as they have grown up and you said your oldest just turned 30. So happy belated birthday to her. As they're going through those physical changes and you're noting they're these sexual beings, their body parts are maturing and they're potentially showing more interest in some people. And certainly if they have any access to the media, they are exposed to sexual messages. So how do you handle that with your value set? How do you raise children that will be exposed to things that perhaps you don't align with, particularly regarding sexuality? I find that the best thing to do is to be very direct and very honest. 
And again, that's a sharing of some personal information and some just general worldly information. When my six of my kids came forward uh, seven years ago and turned in a family member who was being physically abusive. And I realized at that point that I was afraid to share my story of dysfunction growing up. One, I was concerned maybe my kids would read the book and think differently of me. I didn't, my biggest reason was I did not want to hurt my mother's feelings, who is still alive. And basically you hesitate to share your own experiences, I think, for some type of fear-based reason. When my children came forward and admitted this, and I was in court a lot, and I'm like, talk about advocate, right? And I represented myself in court in every situation. And I became <laughs> like, it was nerve wracking and I became really good at it. I had to cross, cross examine someone on, on, and I didn't know until the moment it was happening that I was going to have to cross examine. And I learned to be pretty good at it actually. And um, because I was advocating for my kids, it took myself out of it. It removed me from the equation, how I felt. And I was doing it for my kids. And through that experience, I realized that I wanted my children to own their story and not be afraid of it and not be afraid to share it and not be afraid to allow it to become part of who they were, but not, not define them. And that I couldn't ask them to do something I wasn't willing to do. So I wrote my book about my life growing up and it did completely ruin the relationship I had with my sister and it did hurt my mom's feelings. And I, that I did not want either one of those things to happen. However, I do not regret writing that book. And not only was I no longer afraid of them learning my story, I handed it to them so that they had the ability to read it. And my story was my first sexual experience. Well, my first physical experience was with an OBGYN and it was positive, thankfully. My next experiences and being Christian doesn't mean that, like I didn't wait to have sex to be married. I did when I got married one time, but I didn't wait. I lost my virginity to date rape. It was my first experience. It was a horrible experience. I was humiliated. I felt like this thing that I wanted to, at that point, this, this part of me that I wanted to save, I, I had wanted to save it. If not for marriage, I knew that it was valuable and that the experience in my body were valuable and I wanted to save it for a situation where I had control. And that was taken from me and because of that situation. After that, I thought, well, since I can't save it for what I want, it means nothing now. And I kind of went on my own sexual rampage where I realized I had a lot of control over men and the situation. And I would actually, in my own dysfunction and process of that, I set that up to where I would tell the boy that I was dating, like, I don't want to have sex. I don't think our relationship's ready. I don't think that we're ready. I don't think emotionally it's a good idea. If you push this and we have sex, I will lose no respect for you. And of course, these are young people. So I was setting up the process to fail. We would have sex. I would lose respect for them. And then I wouldn't talk to them again. And I did that with seven different partners. This is not a phase of my life I'm proud of. And in that situation, I realized that I was now creating my own dysfunction 
sexually. And that at some point, if I didn't want it to be that way, if I want, if I did not want to have my sexuality be dysfunctional, I had to change it. And I went to therapy and I went to somebody who did Reiki and massage. And I, I did the things my first year in high school. Unfortunately, it was only a couple of year period where I really, really was able to heal from that and no longer set up this situation where I was now creating my own dysfunction. And, and it did become something more special and more valuable. And here's the really tough part about that. I love sex. So doesn't that mess with you? It felt good. I learned how to have an orgasm. Like I, I learned all about myself and my sexuality and how dysfunctional that I have been molested growing up, which I wrote about. I lost my virginity to date rape. And now I like sex. And how could I be, how could both of those things exist at the same time? And it's because they did. It's because I went through the healing process. It's because the negative sexual issues that I had experienced were outside the bedroom door, so to speak. I didn't allow them into the bedroom. That was something that was separate that I had to heal from, but that was a huge journey. So I had taken this journey of my own. Then I have children growing up with it. So I understand their draw to it. I know it feels good. I know they're raging with hormones. I understand that boys are young and dumb and so are they, and that they're going to get into situations where they're over their head without realizing it because they think they can control it and they can't. And that you can move through and heal from it. So I chose to be very, very upfront when my kids were interested and those conversations started to happen. I, I, I think one thing that Christians do that I feel they are at fault about is like no information, no information, no information. Just wait, just wait, just wait. It's bad. It's bad. It's bad. Don't do it. Don't do it. No sex is amazing and wonderful and great and intimate and feels good. And I love it. And it's wonderful. And it's something that's special that can be a negative situation and you, it can't be both at the same time. And once it's negative, you can't take it back. And so I've done the opposite. I've, I, you want to know how it works, like the actual mechanics? I'll talk about it. You want to know how it feels, the mechanics are emotional? I'm going to talk about it. You want to understand how bad a situation is going to be? Guess what? I lived through it. I'm going to talk about it. So I have done the opposite. And I think that the kids really have to be ready and they have to start initiating those conversations. And you have to kind of be open and sort of allow them to initiate those conversations. And I think the best thing you can do is be brutally honest about how wonderful it is because it can't be bad, bad, bad. It's bad, it's bad. You shouldn't do it. You shouldn't do it. It's sacred. You've got to wait. You've got to wait. And then they get married and you give them a Superman cape and a chandelier and tell them to go to town because you're sending completely mixed messages. Oh, now it's good and wonderful and great. That marriage certificate is not what makes it physically wonderful or emotionally wonderful. It's lots of other things that make it that way. And none of my kids have waited until they've gotten married. I think that's an incredibly difficult thing to do because I didn't do it on two out of three times. And so, you know, I mean, realistically, would I like that to happen? Yes. I know that realistically, it's probably not going to happen. And because of that, my kids are really open sexually. And look, they think it's gross that I have sex just as much as I think it's gross that they have sex. We can understand that it's gross that we know each other is having sex and still have a conversation about it. I'm not telling them specific gory details about it, 
I'm letting them know that I know that you know that I know that we're both having sex and conversations could potentially make that a better experience for you. So you definitely seem to be a person that wants to have the conversation with your young people. And the whole idea of saying that, hey, there's this positivity with sexuality about the the feeling and the sensations. And that if you're going to engage in sexual relations, that there's two people at the table, both are able to experience pleasure. And that's what it's based. It's not going to be one person over another, because I think that's something that when we look at the K through 12 setting, there is a lot of fear of when we talk about anything pertaining to sexuality, it's going to make our kids have sex. And that's never been proven. The research supports that when adults, particularly their parents and other caregivers talk honestly about sex, there is a delay in engaging in sex. But we also don't want to have this fear, fear, fear that you're going to get pregnant, you're going to get SEI and stuff, because apparently if that was the only thing, like it's, it's, then we wouldn't be having as much sex on this planet. I think too, also as a Christian with the Bible, God says very specifically that this is a God given part of being human and having our body, this drive, this desire, And something that God gave me isn't going to be bad, first of all, although he does say that you should save it until you're married, which I think is a super difficult, and I'm not an advocate to not do that. I just am, like, I realize that my kids are human and I can tell them that I can tell them that they shouldn't be sexually active beforehand. But they're, they're going to make that decision anyway. And with everything else, with everything else, with any conversation I have with my kids, talking about it is more important. I know that there are kids out there who didn't know enough about what sex was. So one, they thought kissing was sex or two, they had sex and didn't know that that was what it was. Our kids should not be uneducated. I'm not going to send any one of my children into the world in out into life without at least knowing they should be armed with knowledge. I don't want them having sex with somebody and not realizing, Oh, that's what sex is. And they didn't even know, or thinking that they're going to get pregnant from kissing, leaving your kids uneducated opens the door for lots of manipulation and lots of issues to happen where they don't even realize that that's the situation they've gotten themselves into. And one of the best statistics is discussing suicide in all of my training in foster care. I worked and I have kids that have had suicide attempts. Fortunately, none of them have been successful. And in that we're afraid parents are afraid to have conversations with our kids about anything insert thing here. Why? Why are you afraid to have a conversation? When one of my kids seemed off, it's my responsibility as their parents to say, are you having any suicidal thoughts? Are you feeling suicidal? Are you feeling depressed? Do you feel like you need outside help? And statistically with suicide specifically, the statistics of that go down when we have direct, open, and honest conversation. So I've taken it into every other area of my kid's life. I want them to be the smartest, most educated, confident, self-assured human beings when they're out in the world about every single conversation that comes up. Because when they are presented, not if, when they are presented with something, I want them to have gotten the information from a, a reputable source 
because there's a lot of misinformation about everything out there. And one of the things that I do to discuss things with the kids, like you're, you asked me about sex and how does that start? It actually starts when they have a phone and they want to have an app that edits photos. And this seems so innocent, right? First of all, if all you want to do is take a photo that then you edit, you're lying. It's a lie. You're taking how you look and thinking it's not good enough the way it is. And you're lying about what you look like, period. There's a video out there and you can research this. Everybody needs to like search this. It says video that turns pizza into a girl. So put that in. It's actually a photo of a piece of pepperoni pizza. And it's on, it's, it's on like hyperspeed, right? And it shows you somebody editing in Photoshop taking that piece of pizza and turning it into a girl. If you can Photoshop a slice of pepperoni pizza and turn it into a very attractive young woman, you can Photoshop anything. And that teaches my kids that every image they see on the internet, anywhere on a magazine cover, anywhere is a lie. It's a lie. A hundred percent of them have been edited in one way or another. And it starts with, I just want to get this filter for my phone. Why? Because you don't feel like you're good enough showing up as yourself and the lie begins. And although that doesn't seem directly related to sex, it's continuing to show up as a version of yourself that's not accurate. And, oh, I want to like have my sunglasses down on my nose and my tongue sticking out and the peace sign because all everyone else is doing that. Well, the peace sign and your tongue sticking out are both sexual things. And if you're 11 and 12 and modeling behavior and putting a filter on your phone, you have no idea what you're opening yourself up to. And those are conversations that I want to have with my kids because my 12 year old daughter doesn't know that her taking that picture with her tongue sticking out constantly to her friends and giving the peace sign. She doesn't know what that means. She thinks she's being cool. And I'll just edit it with a filter because it makes me look better. And the lie begins and it opens up. It's just from, it's a domino from this to this, to this. And it, it is sexual. It becomes sexual very rapidly. So I think you need to have those conversations. Well, thank you for expanding on that, for explaining your points. I truly appreciate hearing them, Jen. And I want to go back to something and it's going to be something that we might have to agree to disagree on. Yeah. But this isn't my story. I didn't have this happen yet. I've heard from other people uh, that they they made this comment, and maybe it's because I'm on the side of being a prevention person in the classroom, and then an interventionist when something happens. But you had said about losing your virginity from a date rape. In my mind, uh, losing one's virginity is a choice. Date rape, you didn't have a choice. I 100% agree with you. I 100%. You're talking about a 16-year-old, right? I was 16 and a half. I graduated high school at 17, so I was a year ahead. So this was in between my junior and senior year of high school and how I emotionally reacted to the situation, which no, you you are 100% correct. Uh, the, it, the choice was taken away and my first time should have been, that's why I said I went on this dysfunctional rampage. Cause I felt like, well, the first time's gone. What's the point? I might as well just keep having sex. And not only that, I'm going to set it up in a super dysfunctional way. Did I think about it that way? Absolutely not. I was reacting emotionally to a very traumatic event where I felt like something precious to me had been robbed. It took me that next, 
until I was 18. So two and a half years to go through, which is relatively, I mean, really retrospectively, that's not a super long time that I really worked through all of that. No, it's not. And to realize that every time, every time you make a choice to sexually engage with someone, the first time is the first time. And that's never robbed from you. And it should be special and sacred and intimate. And what I taught all of my kids and And really, I taught it differently to my boys and my girls. With my boys, I taught them that the girl should have this choice. And with my girls, I taught them that they should have this choice. You should have the choice of if it happens, when it happens, where it happens, how it happens, why it happens, with whom it happens. You should control the narrative on all of the parts of whether or not you want to have sex. And you should really think about it and have a conversation with that boy prior to getting caught up in the act and you should control the narrative of how that happens because it it is the first time that you're engaging in sexual activity with that person. And it should mean something to you and you should control the narrative emotionally and physically. It is different for girls than it is for boys. And so I really wanted my boys to respect that with the girl. And I really wanted my girls to respect themselves. I can't stop if it's going to happen. I can control how educated they are and how they go into it on the lot from a logical perspective. That's all I have control over is teaching them that. You but the we hundred percent agree. We we agree. Okay. You have the same time if there's a, a male and female and the guy wants to wait. Yeah, the girl should also support that. A hundred percent. Yeah, yeah, a hundred percent. Well, we're coming to the end of our time together, and I wanted to see if there's any advice you have for young people listening in. So if they, if they're listening or they're getting the tail end of this today, what's your advice for young people? I actually have a couple quotes that I love. And one is this too shall pass. And that is true of everything. I always say I have a hundred percent success rate in getting through really bad days or really bad moments or insert thing here. And I mean, I grew up in a lot of dysfunction. I mentioned being molested. Some of those tough situations can last a really long time, but I want them to know that this too shall pass and that you will, you can have the ability a hundred percent success rate in getting through stuff. That's really tough. There's always a silver lining. There's always a positive learning and everything negative that you experience. And the other one of my favorite expressions is you can't eat an elephant in one bite. I think we try to like take something on or a situation seems so absolutely overwhelming. We try to do all the things all at once. And really, whether it's goal setting or a situation that's really overwhelming, like talking to a friend who hurt your feelings. It can be something like that. Those things can feel, can be really overwhelming. Break it down. It's small, easy actions. And it's also the theory of compound interest. And when you learn the theory of compound interest, this ties into everything. It's my favorite theory. It's small, easy daily actions. It's usually taught in math. And so in a financial way, but it's small, easy daily actions that add up over time. And 
compound interest can work for you or against you. So you have friends, you have five really good, you have five really good friends, but one of them's always super negative. And every time you're with that friend or talk to that friend, it really bums you out and brings you down. Well, if you get a little about, if that's a small, easy daily action that you get a little bit of this negativity every single day, that's going to add up over time. So from your friends and the situations that you're in to your money, to your decisions, to what you decide to think about and engage in, it's all really about small, easy daily actions, not eating an elephant in one bite that add up over time. And you can allow those to add up in a positive way, investing money or a negative way. And, and that really is up to you and know that when it's a negative situation or thing, this too shall pass. If somebody would like to get in touch with you after listening in, and maybe they want to have access to your podcast, how can they find you online? The easiest way to find me is at momsrunningit.com. It's a blog. Basically, every way to get in touch with me that I'm available on is there. So you can choose whichever way is the best for you. Uh, my email is awesome. And that's jen at momof18.com. And it's listed on the website. But the podcast, the blog, like everything is on the website. So momsrunningit.com gives you more inform like more information than you ever really wanted to have. And also it gives you the ability to get in touch. And you said it's moms running. Momsrunningit.com. Momsrunningit.com. And what I'll do is I'll have a link in the description of this episode so people can easily find the link and then connect with you. Awesome. Thank you so much. No, thank you for being here. And would you like to say so long to our audience? I think just thank you for listening and understand how valuable you are. And if you don't feel like you're valuable to the people around you or even to yourself, you can change that narrative. Nothing that you go through defines who you are. What a wonderful way to end. And please, if you would like to get in touch with Jen Taylor, our guest for today, please check out her, her website. Please listen to her podcast. For me, if you have any questions or comments, feel free to email me at pubertyprof at gmail.com. Go to pubertyprof.com and you can sign up for newsletters. I thank you so much for listening in today. And I hope that you have a happy and healthy day. Thank you for listening to the Puberty Prof Podcast, where information and tools are shared to help you have conversations about puberty and other growing up topics. Did you enjoy this episode? Please like, share, and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also follow the Puberty Prof on Twitter or Instagram. The Puberty Prof, Lori Reichel, wants to hear from you. Go to pubertyprof.com or click on the link in this episode's description. There you can find more information, as well as ask questions to be answered by the Puberty Prof in a future episode. That's pubertyprof.com. Also, remember to check out the Talk Puberty app and the book, Common Questions Children Ask About Puberty. Until next time, this is the Puberty Prof Podcast, where information and tools are shared to help you have conversations about puberty and other growing up topics.